muted. Sorry, it's my first time on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome. Uh, uh, thanks for getting uh, getting on at uh, what seven a.m. in Australia. Ah, uh, yes, it's uh, it's not too early for us, as you know. But um, yeah, yeah, it's all good. Yeah. And uh, tell me about the background. Uh, the background. Uh, this is a typical scene when we're out on the boat. And this was actually a photo taken off uh, Fraser Island, halfway up the coast of, uh, of Queensland. Although they've just changed the name of, of Fraser to Kagari, that um, uh, as the indigenous name. Uh, well, we'll we'll um we'll come on. back to the boat in due course, I'm sure, during yeah. the conversation. So thanks very much for uh, uh, joining this. Uh, if you've seen any of these podcasts, you know it's called Surgeons' Lives. Um, and the subtext is uh, stuff that matters. I guess that's where the boat maybe comes in uh, in some mm -hmm. way. But um, uh, but what I normally ask people, and I will ask you to do, uh, is to start it off with um, a brief uh, life story to date, starting with the words, I was born in. Wow, that's a good question. I was actually born in Papua New Guinea. Uh -oh, in Port PNG, Portage. yeah. PNG, yes. Uh, I spent my first three months of life in, in PNG, where my, my father was up there working with one of the Australian Airlines as an aircraft engineer, and uh, then moved back to, to Melbourne, which is the sort of the home place where I then grew up. And uh, when then I was about 14, just about nearly 15, I found myself on a plane on my own and went across to Vancouver to visit some relatives who were living over there. And uh, I made my way over there um, on standby. I had to go at that stage via <laughs> Melbourne to Auckland to Fiji, Hawaii, San Francisco, then up to uh, Vancouver uh, on standby all the way, which was interesting on your own. Yeah, I'll um, bet. When I got there, um, I enjoyed myself and I said, look, guys, would you mind if I uh, stay and went to school here? And they sent off a, a telex at that time to my parents, because this is back in the uh, mid-70s. And uh, they said, well, look, we've got other boys here to look after, so you you take him. And so I then uh, spent a year in Vancouver, which was my first introduction to, to, to North American life. And I guess my first uh, love of my... Uh, other uh, interest, which is snow sports. Yeah. So my first, uh, my uncle then taught me how to ski in the local uh, Vancouver mountains there. And again, what what age were you then? I just turned 15 okay. uh, in the first week that I arrived. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And uh, they managed to get me into a school and they put me into a combined year 11, year 12 group. And uh, I was keen to, to learn a bit of skiing. So he got some gear from the next door neighbor, which was some leather lace-up boots. <laughs> and probably probably my most famous skis that, that were given to me then was a pair of Lamborghini skis. <laughs> Actually named after uh, Claude Keeley. Yeah, Jean-Claude uh, Keeley. Lamborghini uh, yeah. was, was the so uh, that's how I learned to ski, and, and uh, I've loved it ever since, and and uh, introduced the family since then. 
And uh, so we now uh, have a place in Canada, uh, which we've had for, I guess, nearly 20 years now. So I get, go back there every season. Ah, and okay. spend four or five weeks uh, each season there. And uh, we, we tend to also ski here in, in Australia. Yeah. Uh, less so recently, but uh, having said that, we'll be, we'll be down there in 58 sleeps. So um, uh, before you were able to, uh, uh, you know, recreate your life uh, with the place in Canada and all of that sort of stuff, there was a small matter of pursuing a medical career. Um, your yeah, your dad was an engineer. Yeah. Where, where did the medicine come from? Uh, I don't know where the medicine came from. Um, when I was in Canada, I did biology. That was a combined year 11, 12 mm -hmm. uh, biology and did well at that. And that seems to have, I guess, uh, piqued my interest in sciences. And it just seemed a natural progression to go from there into, into medicine. Uh, got into Monash um, Medical School in Melbourne. And towards the end of that, I was tossing up, uh, you know, one week I wanted to be a gynecologist, the next week I wanted to be a cardiologist. Um, somewhere in there with my first week as an intern and that's straight out of medical school i was sent to a slightly regional hospital um, and after five o'clock you were it so yeah. there was no consultant there was no registrars and i was it for surgery for this uh hospital which is only about 50 kilometers outside of Mel melbourne uh, down in frankston on the peninsula and so as an intern, I got to do lots of appendicectomies and uh, even <laughs> nailed some hips and everything else, um, sure, with, with consultant uh, supervision. But this is a sort of exposure that you didn't get, uh, or certainly don't get to, to, to no. do these days. No, no, not at all. Uh, and I came to that realisation very quickly in my first term that surgery actually helped people and helped them pretty quickly. Right. As opposed to my next uh, rotations doing uh, medicine, where you change the medication and change another medication, the patient's still there a few weeks later, nothing's really changed. And so it's, it's sort of gone on from there. And then, and, uh, you know, for the North American people who uh, are, might watch this, um, uh, you know, medicine in those days um, was uh, sort of the British model. So straight out of high school into medical school, straight out of medical school into whatever uh, you decide. But you don't have to decide, um, as you say. And I mean, some people take years to decide, uh, but exactly, you don't. Yeah. 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 So you basically do it a few years as a house officer, a uh, junior house officer, and then decide what you want to do from there, whether it be general practice or one of the other specialties. Yeah. And uh, uh, surgery was my my uh, goal at that time, and then gone into general surgery. And I guess it's mainly because of the the mentors that you have uh, around you that it sort of led me into colorectal surgery. And the other main reason for going into colorectal surgery is that at that time, back in the the early and mid nineteen nineties. Uh, the Colorectal Surgical Society of Australia New Zealand, combined with the College of Surgeons had set up the training board, the ANZ uh, training board in colorectal surgery back in the 80s. And at that time was the only post-fellowship uh, course available, uh, which you know, for Australia and New Zealand is a two-year post-fellowship 
um, course. And so I was very lucky at that time to get into, into that. Uh, and even more lucky to have my first preference, which was to go to Royal Brisbane. Right. So at this stage, you you were still a boy from Victoria and and what and everything that that meant, which is, I guess, you know, some people outside of Australia may not recognize that it's it's a different country in some respects. I mean, it's it's not the same as Brisbane. Queensland is not the same as Victoria. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, yeah, uh, certainly Melbourne uh, and to a lesser extent Sydney, much more conservative, uh, sort of old school, um, probably settled a little bit earlier um, in the development of the colonies, but um, certainly we, we continued that sort of old school, uh, very much more of an English style to it. So, um, subtropics. So, when you went to Brisbane, were you just going to go for the year or two or? Uh, yeah, just for the year. Yeah. So at that stage, uh, we're talking the mid 1990s, and Russell Stitz, um, who was head of the the unit back then, Russell was a pioneer in minimally invasive surgery, having done yeah. the the first laparoscopic colectomy back in 1991 uh, for the Southern Hemisphere, and that was a, a monumental step to take because uh, at that stage he hadn't done any laparoscopic surgery. Yeah. And he had some great mentors with him, uh, the likes of George Fielding, yeah, Les Nathanson, yes. to help him do the operation. And Les had just come back from from Scotland, and George similarly from overseas, and they were really pioneers in their own rights in terms of upper GI and HPB, uh, MIS. So the three of them got together with. Uh, another visiting American, I can't remember his name, but at that stage, he was the world's expert because he'd done four laparoscopic colectomies. <laughs> so uh, between them, they took on a case, which I wouldn't recommend people do for their first uh, laparoscopic case, which was a, a total colectomy for megacolon. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, it just sounds crazy, especially back then where you really had no advanced instruments. There was a yeah. hook diagnosis. There was no staplers. There was no yeah. clips. Uh, you had to basically ligger tie everything. Yeah, no, uh, no vessel sealers. You know, no, not at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, needless to say, it took uh, way too long nine and a half hours. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, after so that, who uh, were your mentors at this stage, or did you have people who you recognized as your mentors? Yeah, back in, in Melbourne, uh, my main mentors were Jack McLeish, the younger brother of Andy McLeish, right. both uh, renowned colorectal surgeons. Uh, Bruce Waxman was there, and also Rick McIntyre. And Richard McIntyre, um, I'm still in touch with these days, but not for surgical purposes. Uh, Rick did his colorectal fellowship over in Oxford, and uh, sort of taught me their ways when, when I was the registrar with him. But he also, when he came back from Oxford, had a, a sideline of an interest in wines. All so right. he bought a plot of land down on the Mornington Peninsula, which is just near where my first hospital was as an intern. So it all sort of plays back into that. And, and Rick actually was, was working both at that hospital and up at Monash. 
And uh, so he bought this plot of land and uh, put in some vines back in the early 80s. And his his winery is now extremely good and has won some uh, great accolades worldwide. Yeah. It's on uh, you know, the world's top Pinot outside of France. Um, yeah. And very good Chardonnays as well. That's Muradak Estate. So his, uh, he'd given up surgery uh, he certainly has by now, uh, but continues on with the with the winery and his and his daughter continues on as that as well with the sort of front of of um, of the winery, uh, being the first uh, Australia's first female master of wines. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah. So uh, all of these guys, or most of these guys that you mentioned, had done the traditional pathway of. You know, either been to America or been to England, um, been mm-hmm. to Scotland, whatever. George was in Gloucester, and as you say, Les was in Scotland. And um, what about you? Well, I did the the first year there in in Brisbane, and as I mentioned, I was I was very lucky to get up to Brisbane to work with uh, Russell Stitz and John Lumley had just come back from his post fellowship training as well. Yeah. Uh, so. They were both doing uh, a fair bit of laparoscopic colectomy and uh, and rectal surgery at that stage, and then I, for my second year, I went down to Sydney to Royal Prince Alfred uh, to work with Michael Solomon, yeah. who had just returned at that stage from Toronto, yeah. and uh, work with the, the rest of the unit there, Tony Ayres and so on, and also did spend a bit of time over at Concord with Les Bouquet, uh, Peter Stewart. And sort of develop further develop the laparoscopic side of, of uh, the skills. And at the end of those two years, uh, I'd finished my post fellowship training, and I was very lucky to have good offers from Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane, and they were all very keen for me to get started. So I didn't go overseas further from yep. that, um, and I tossed up where I'd like to settle down. And looked at, at what was happening uh, in the surgical world, and it was clear to me at that stage that Brisbane was was leading the way in terms of minimally invasive yeah. surgery. But more importantly, they also had the the support of administration to get the equipment yeah. to allow them to do that, which was I could see was not happening at all down in Melbourne. Uh, yeah. There was still yeah. a very much an anti laparoscopic approach from from administration. Um, so, and also Sydney would have been great, but I would have needed a helicopter to get me around, uh, and uh, a fortune to be able to live on the water where I w- yeah. would want to live. So Brisbane is, is where we settled and, uh, my, my good wife, Ada were, was happy to, to move as well. She's also medical. And so we moved up to Brisbane and started our career from there and, uh, haven't looked back. No, uh, to uh, to say the least. Um, I just, um, uh, you know, mentioning all those names, um, who of course, uh, you know, I knew as well from uh, my trips, etc. I always remember. Um, I don't know if you recall Russell um, Russell's great story of uh, his Range Rover and um, having bought this Range Rover, he uh, it would not start. And uh, he uh, he had to summon the guys um, from the dealership because the car was stranded. His his fantastic um, Range Rover that he'd spent a fortune on, you know, and it's a 
pretty yeah. classy motor, etc. And he was a very important surgeon, you know, and there were lives to be saved. And this Range Rover wasn't working. And this guy came out from the dealership. And um, Russell was somewhat humiliated to be informed that he did actually have to put it in park to start it. <laughs> <laughs> the automatic box. <laughs> so his his magnificence as the important surgeon was yeah. a little diminished <laughs> at that moment. <laughs> Somewhat, yes. Yeah. I'm sure we've all done that in our lives with other things. <laughs> exactly. That's also in surgery um, at times. Yeah. So, and uh, in your, uh, I mean, early on, I mean, as as long as I've known you, you've always been something of a a, a tech geek. Um, I remember you had uh, in the in the private hospital you had the uh, voice controlled OR, if I recall correctly, mm -hmm. um, and and you've you've always uh, you know been down that line. But you know perhaps what you've become best known for is 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 the clinical trial space, um, uh, which is you know not a uh, you know uh, without you know, no offense to anyone. It's it, it's not a huge, Australia is not known hugely for that, but I mean, some of the most important work is you've been leading that. How did you get into that? Uh, yeah, well, thanks, John. Uh, it's good to be known for anything and hopefully in, in, a, in a good way as well. Um, but at that time when I was in, in Brisbane uh, back in 1996, the the talk around the world was was concerned about um, should we be doing laparoscopic surgery for cancer and there was these reports of port site metastases yeah. and so on and you know people in the US uh, very strong voices were saying it should not be done for cancer and so of course we had to set up trials and, and there was a number of trials that set up around the world at that stage and we managed to to get a trial going in uh, Australia, New Zealand, and because I was a young one and keen on uh, on new technology and exploring what it what it can do and where it should be be used, uh, I sort of put my hand up to help out with with that. So that's how I got myself onto the trial management committee uh, for LCAS, yeah. which is this when laparoscopic uh, cancer at the colon uh, trial um, it took us a couple of years to get funding yeah uh, which is one of the biggest uh, hurdles here particularly in Australia and New Zealand to is to get big trials up and going is is funding the other aspect for us is our relatively small population yeah um, we now have I think 26 million in all of Australia, add on to that another six million New Zealanders. So, you know, all of that together is less than than California. Yeah. So, for us to get through the numbers, particularly for a surgical trial, and to train people up to a certain level uh, before committing yeah. to those trials, uh, being eligible for those trials, that's also another big hurdle. But it, it's important to have those in terms of. Um, ensuring that you've got the right people uh, on the trial. But from there, you know, we, we, we completed LCAS. Uh, we demonstrated uh, non-inferiority in terms of uh, oncologic outcomes. Yeah. 
we were a bit late in terms of uh, reporting those, but our data safety management committee refused to let us report on any of the short-term outcomes until we'd got our five-year uh, outcomes. Um, so I think because of that, we you know everything else got published before that, the classic yeah. um, the cost trial and color one, uh, and they came out with their early data. As by the time we put ours out, everyone had moved on. Yeah. Um, and that's when we had to move on as well because LCAS was purely for colon cancer mm. and we did not include um, rectal cancer in that at all, which I think was the right thing to do back then. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah for sure. Uh, you know, I was, technology. I was talking to a group of research fellows today pointing out that um, since the beginning of these trials, um, and we were talking in terms of the prospect study that was just um, presented at ASCO. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when Classic came out, the criticism, legitimate criticism, was that it was not reflective of practice at the time of publication because people had learned how to do the operation mm -hmm. um, more so than at the start. You know, the learning curve was 20 cases, um, et cetera. And so... You know, we spent a hundred years as colorectal surgeons working out how to do how to take the rectum out. You know, TME really didn't mm -hmm. come until the late eighties, nineties, etc. But in the last twenty years, the pace of change has been meteoric, and, mm -hmm. and almost every study that has been published, um, both in terms of oncology and and technology is obsolete when it publishes, uh, you know, and Prospect is the latest, you know, Prospect was asking the question, did you need radiation? Nobody was really talking about organ preservation as the main aim at that point. Yeah. And so by the time it comes out, everybody says, okay, well, you maybe don't need radiation, but that's not the question anymore. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a real problem actually, because mm -hmm. it's, uh, and, you know, the craft specialty trials will always be like this. It's, um, you know, I, as you will recall, you know, did that sum up for uh, ASCRS where the five trials were put together. And, you know, I, one of the things I commented on that, the, you know, there were five trials presented and four of the five PAs had chosen to ignore the results of their own trial. By the mm -hmm. time they were published, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's just it's just the the way it is, really. I, I guess you know. So yeah, um, yeah. So, so similar, when we we'd moved on then to the question of rectal cancer, yeah, and course, yeah, yeah, we're treating that with a minimally invasive approach. Again, it took years to get funding, but uh, we did otherwise do pretty well for a, a small group of countries to. Uh, recruit patients uh, basically the same rate as, as what was happening in the US. Um, and you know, we got to publish our results in the same journal uh, for Z6051, yeah. uh, which was which was great. Um, but you know we, we've since worked out that perhaps laparoscopy isn't as good as what we thought it was. Um, we both trials didn't demonstrate yep. non-inferiority. Um, the color two and the Korean one, as you know, did demonstrate that, and uh, in terms of disease-free or oncological, uh, uh, sorry, uh, disease-free and overall survival. 
but um, the concerns about some of those aspects of the trial. In the meantime, as you know, the world has moved on to robotics. Yeah. yeah. And or transanal TME and, and the, although the concerns with that as well. So, you know, the world will keep on moving on. Uh, but I yeah. think we're going to get better at working out the, the answer to the question, perhaps in different ways, uh, and certainly less as silos. Um, so doing things more as, as, as international trials rather than little countries here and there. Yeah. And, you know, um, uh, there are groups in the United States that take the view that rectal cancer is a medical condition. And uh, whilst I'm I'm pretty sure it isn't a medical condition in 2023. Uh, you know, I suspect uh, it it's rapidly becoming that way. I mean, the the, yeah. the rate of organ preservation is rocketed, and I'm sure that'll be wrong, but it's going that way, etc. Exactly, and that, and that's going to have a big effect, uh, flow on effect in terms of training. Oh yeah, yeah, coming for sure. through. Where you know, in the past we were doing, you know, 50, 60, 70 rectal cancers each year. Um, and now they'll be lucky if they get 10 or, or 15 oh, yeah, for a sure. year in their training. Uh, so it's going to have a big effect on that. So uh, you, as you know, Andrew, I'm a big fan of Australia and I always enjoy going there and visiting with friends, etc. cetera. Um, but um, I wanted to ask you how you um, have managed this business of the tyranny of distance um, and you know, being part of mainstream uh, colorectal surgery internationally. I mean, you go back to the era of, um, you know, Turnbull, Gallagher and Hughes that used to travel together. And, you know, that was that was when traveling was was quite challenging. And, you know, the Aussies, like all, I mean, they're like the Irish, you know, they like to um, punch above their weight and bitch and moan about how you know nobody takes any notice of them etc etc um now the world is a much smaller place now um but um you know australia doesn't uh, clearly like a lot of places like that get the true recognition um for the, its contributions how is that uh, how have you managed that in terms of have you seen that change over the your career I certainly have, um, and you know, that first trip I made to North America, as I mentioned back in the seventies, I had to go make multiple stops because yeah. the plane didn't go that far. Yeah. Now you can get anywhere in the world, and soon you'll be able to go Sydney, London, non-stop direct um, yeah. very soon. So the the only tyranny then is is jet lag, but yeah. with the improved planes, even that's becoming less of a problem. Um, but yeah, the Southern Hemisphere, I think, in general, does, often doesn't get considered. Um, uh, I wouldn't be far off being true in saying that, but I think certainly in this century, in terms of communications, uh, I think there's been a greater involvement of uh, the Southern Hemisphere, greater diversity in, uh, in societies. Uh, and their executive boards. And I think that has, has broadened their horizons more so that it makes it uh, perhaps easier for the likes of those coming from lesser known areas to be involved. Uh, 
and certainly I've, I've felt very welcomed uh, in all the societies I've, I've visited uh, around the world and been very fortunate to make great contacts uh, around the world. Um, certainly had missed those contacts uh, during the pandemic. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it's certainly not the same doing it via Zoom. No. Uh, it's no. been great, you know, in the last 12 months to to reconnect again, you know, just after the yeah. American meeting over in, in Europe and, and reconnecting with, with others over there. Um, and so I don't think there's that tyranny of distance anymore in terms of being able to do collaborative trials. We've just completed the pilot study of Rollercart. So that's the, our next one on from Alicard. This is robotic versus laparoscopic yeah. for right colon cancer. And uh, we've we've included uh, Jim Khan uh, and others from the from the UK. Um, the US was to be involved in that as well, but for various uh, uh, finance issues, they didn't get involved at that in that time. But hopefully, going forward into the full trial, uh, we'll be able to incorporate UK, Europe, Ireland, uh, Asia, USA, and Australasia. Uh, with surgeons all very keen to be involved with this with this next part of the trial. And as long as funding can get sorted out, we can hopefully then complete the trial in a very short amount of time. Um, so that, that tyranny of distance doesn't exist uh, so much anymore. Um, and I think as, as long as you keep on putting, putting your head up above the water every now and again, just to sort of wave and say, here we are, uh, I think, you know, People are, are happy to be very inclusive. So uh, it's a good segue. So when I first visited you, I remember you had a house on the water and kayaking uh, to get fresh morning bread, if I recall mm -hmm. correctly. You do have a good memory. <laughs> <laughs> and you have clearly <laughs> upgraded from the kayak. <laughs> Um, so tell me, you mentioned um, uh, you mentioned your your uh, snow uh, snowboarding and skiing and uh, winter sports, I should say, um, mm -hmm. interests, etc. But um, um, you and Ada are obviously uh, uh, sailors. Uh, uh, tell me about yeah, that. Sure. How did that all start? Yeah. Apart from the fact that it would be stupid not to, because you're on the water in Brisbane. Yeah, well, I guess that was part of the reasons for being there. But, um, yeah. but no, I've been sailing all my life uh, since I was a child and went, went sort of through the Sea Scouts uh, down in Melbourne. Uh, the, some of you may be aware of the Brighton Brighton Beach uh, house, beach boxes there, sort of colourful area, yeah. uh, very well known. And that the Sea Scout Hall was right there on the beach, uh, on the sand so that's how I grew up, um, going out every Saturday, rain, hail or shine. And there wasn't much shine in, in Melbourne, um, but a lot of rain and uh, a lot of cold uh, Saturday afternoons. But we just went out every every weekend um, and we built a few boats together uh, with my father as well. Uh, we sailed down to Tasmania on one of the boats that we'd uh, done up. It was a little 28-foot timber boat. And uh, going across that straight in uh, something like that was something you don't ever forget. Yeah. Uh, but also, if you're wise, something you never do again. I was going to say, yeah. That's, uh, so, uh, it involved quite a lot of lack of imagination. You know? Yeah. So, uh, 
Um, so my, my love of, of, of water activities has continued from there uh, and been sailing, as I say, all my life and eventually got my own big catamaran um, about 2008, 2009, and uh, have upgraded that one since. Uh, so you can now take it pretty well around the world if you wanted to, but uh, I've just been doing more racing and, and coastal sailing. Uh, so, so yes, I, I don't know whether you've had a chance to see the um, interview I did with Fabio Potenti and his wife, Kristen. Um, no. So they have sold their house. You know, Fabio was mm -hmm. in the Cleveland Clinic in Florida, and they sold their house and are traveling around, sailing around the world, literally. They're in, uh, uh, mm -hmm. they just crossed the Pacific in a catamaran. Um, yeah. And are just in French Polynesia at the moment. Um, mm. And you'll find them on uh, on YouTube and Facebook as Harbors Unknown. Um, right. So mm -hmm. he definitely uh, he definitely took uh, took your thoughts. Um, I mean, he's as you, same as you, lifelong sailor. So, um, so when you were, you know, when I first met you, you were a young and up and coming surgeon, and you know, just thrusting and thriving and uh, striving to you know, become successful in everything that you were doing, which you, you obviously did. Um, and, but, you know, now here we are, you're taking four or five weeks skiing, you're, you know, catamaraning around. Um, what is your, what does your life look like in terms of that um, work-life balance? You, you, I've always seen you as being a very efficient person who has a tidy bedroom, you know, um thanks you know, no, I, i'm not sure you've <laughs> actually seen my bedroom but anyway <laughs> but you know what but i mean no, i mean you're, you're yeah, you don't no, lounge around a lot yeah, you know? yeah. that, that work-life balance i've i've uh tried to have from the very start so you know having those four or five weeks of, of skiing i've done from the start it's not just now that i'm over 60 and uh getting into my twilight years that i start to do that i've done that from the beginning and and I think probably have to thank again Russell for that, uh, not for making sure that I get that balance right, but just giving me a, 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 a good example of how to get better work-life yeah. balance uh, because he seemed to work so much um, and we were often operating until midnight every night as I, when I was the fellow. Yeah. And I see that that wasn't the right thing to do for me, for my, perhaps for my patients, uh, and certainly not for my family. So when I started as a consultant, uh, I made sure that I had an afternoon off every week. So of the Monday to Friday, had an afternoon off. And that was generally a Wednesday afternoon. And that was uh, basically quarantined to be not work. So you yeah. couldn't do it to, to catch up with your paperwork or or do some extra cases or yep. do some yep. research. Or something. It was either go off and play golf or hop on the boat and go, yeah. go racing. Uh, so now it's basically every Wednesday afternoon, you, I go down to uh, to Manly, to the yacht club, and we go out and we do a race. I mean, there's often 40, 50 boats. And, and when you're in that sort of environment, you can't be thinking about work. No. no yeah. Otherwise you have a, a a crash just like at the start of the ocean race the other the other day um 
and that refreshes you and keeps you efficient for the rest of the week. Um, so I'd like to continue getting out on the boat at least once or twice a week. We'll up and race or go away cruising on weekends as well. Um, and my wife is, is a fantastic sailor and a great racer, but she hasn't, she's not keen on the, um, the stresses involved with racing. So she does look prefer to, to the cruising side of it. And, uh, but I've got lots of other good, good, great crew sure. around yeah. to continue with that. But, uh, no, go on. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's important to me get that that work life balance just right. Um, and you know, with the, with the skiing, uh, we've got one son, and he's been brought up since he was two and a half with the skiing. Yeah. And, and now the the three of us are, you know, we're actually all Canadian ski instructors, certified ski instructors, and. Uh, so long term, uh, we hope to spend more time on the snow, yeah, and probably working as ski instructors, um, and spending a bit more time there, a bit more time here, but still continuing to work uh, long term. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. I, I ask, uh, you know, most of the people that I interview, um, not everyone, because um, you know some of the people who are shall we say, in the prime of their career rather than heading towards the autumn of their career, um, whatever those words or phrases are, you know. Um, um, but around the world, you know, retirement thoughts and plans differ wildly. Um, you know, in the NHS, it's, uh, you know, 65 is the NHS retirement age, but most people retire at 60. That does not happen in the United States. Um, mm. Some people like Rob Madoff, um, you know, just retired and went cold turkey and is delighted with that decision. Whereas others tell mm. me they want to, they're not done yet and they want to keep working in some way, shape or form. What, what is your, uh, first of all, what do you think intellectually about that? Do you think you should be you think surgeons should be operating on people when they're 80 um and and what about you what is your thinking are you gonna are you do you have a a, a walk away date or is it mulling over in your mind yeah um that's something that we've always been considering for a little while when you get to this age um and a lot of discussions with colleagues about what they're doing and so on john lumley uh, he's only two years older than me he's he's just retired cold turkey yeah um, and I'm sure he's enjoying himself with that. But uh, for me, um, yeah, I can't see myself doing that for another 10 years or so. Uh, I'm still fit and, and, and active. And I think I still operate uh, better than I ever did. Um, and it's part of the technology that allows me to do that. And 85% of my cases now are robotic. If I had greater access to robot, it would be even yeah. more than that. Um, but it's it's 100% minimally invasive, uh, so I don't do any open surgery anymore. So you're not uh, bending over and getting the sore back yeah. and sore. Mm -hmm. Laparoscopically, I think uh, ergonomically it's not great, but robotics allows it. If you're doing that properly, allows you to preserve your body, and it 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 does help in terms of vision and in terms of tremor and everything else. So 
allows you to maintain that precision. So yes, the robotics may allow me to, to operate for longer, but the biggest factor there, the thing we don't often think about is the thing that actually thinks, which is the brain. Yeah. So it's your cognitive yeah. level. Yeah. So I think as long as you've got the physical side, that's great, but it's important to have the cognitive side. How do you react? How do you make the right decisions about what to do in this particular case? And I think that's going to be the limiting factor for, for me, uh, probably for most surgeons, as the time to consider putting down the tools. You could probably continue on if you wanted to in some other aspect, such as research uh, or training or doing other things that are perhaps less cognitively uh, taxing, such as colonoscopy and so on. So who's uh, who's going to be the person that will tap you on the shoulder saying, Andrew, I think it's time? Well, hopefully there isn't someone who taps me on the shoulder and you can make that decision first. But I suspect that probably that person's probably going to be my wife. Right. Yeah. Do you think there uh, should be? Um, you know, a couple of surgeons have said to me, you know, maybe we should all be tested beyond the age of sixty or sixty-five. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. And, and how would you test them? Because uh, I think the big part of that is that cognitive side of it. Um, but my wife has been my assistant in surgery yeah. for the last twenty-five plus years. Uh, I have uh, for one day of the week. I have the fellows for the other days of the week. Uh, so they're all good litmus tests for you uh, about how things are going. And you've always got them talking over your shoulder about, should we do this? Or yeah. I don't know if that's the right thing to do there. Some fellows are much more forward than others in, yeah. in, in they'll approach that. And my wife is always forward in how she tells me how we're, we're operating that day. And if we finish the day and, and she says, you know, that was a really beautiful operation today. I know things have gone well. Um, so <laughs> now you can't. Uh, you I'm must sure promise, she's going to be the one. <laughs> yeah, well, you must promise not to tell her this, but uh, um, the, of course, the fellows could be uh, in the OR going, you know, those two are past it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody realizes. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody has the nerve to tell you. So listen, how would you like to be remembered? And, uh, how do you think you will be remembered? Oh, I'm not sh sure if I even want to be remembered. Um, it's not why I do surgery. It's certainly not why I do trials or anything else. Uh, it's, it's all for purely personal reasons of wanting to explore and, and find the answers for myself. Um, yeah, I, I, I enjoy technology. I ex enjoy exploring uh, new technologies and and giving them a fair go. Um, but I hope to be able to uh, pass on that enthusiasm for academic surgery. Um, I wouldn't call myself a true academic surgeon because um, I'm, I'm not. Um, but that, uh, that desire to explore and to teach others and to teach others how to do things properly and not um, give them one sort of set of goals and they go up and do their own thing and they think that they've, they've achieved it but really they're not doing the operation that you actually showed them to do yeah. Yeah. 
And I, I think there's so many good examples of that. And one that comes to mind immediately is ventral rectopexy yeah. for rectal prolapse. There are so many variations of that operation <laughs> that I, I see running workshops around the world um, that, you know, what Andre Dore first described back in the early 2000s looks nothing like that for most of the things I get to see. But also he's moved on a lot from, from then and as I have uh, in terms of how the operation's actually done. So it's important for, you know, Sometimes, perhaps in the UK, um, an operation might get a bad name, but it's not actually the operation other people are doing. I think it's, um, I think it's the 21st century version of version of PPH. You know, when yeah. PPH came out, everybody decided to do it. People who never did hemorrhoid work decided to do it, mm. and it, it was not a happy story. Um, mm. When uh, you know, ventral rectopexy came out. A whole bunch of people said, hey, look, that looks easy. I think I'll do that. And, you know, in both occasions uh, or in both systems, you know, the, as you say, the operation that was originally described is not the operation that you see on that video. I don't know. Where did they get that from? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, in terms of, of um, a, a legacy, uh, again, I hope it's to instill in, in those coming through uh, that, um that interest in in academia, in trials, and and getting things right. Well, I think uh, you know the your team and your your staff and your fellows would be, I mean, they'd be quite content if the legacy you left them was uh, the catamaran. I think. <laughs> I'm sure they would. Yes. Okay, yeah. so we'll. Uh, just before we wrap up, um, I'll ask you a series of um, of quickfire questions, which are very sort of formulaic, and I'm sure you've heard them all before, but you don't get a chance to think about them. Uh, there are no right or wrong answers, other than the fact that I clearly know what the right answer is. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, here we go. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. Cricket, rugby, or footy? Uh, footy. Uh, beer or wine? Wine. Uh, Mac or PC? Mac. Uh, beach it. or mountain? Oh, good question. Uh, probably go for the mountain. Uh, if that was sea versus mountain, it might be different. But the beach, that's lying on the beach, don't care for it too much. Beetles or stones? Um, probably stones. Cats or dogs? Like, can I go back one and, and prefer Elvis? <laughs> Cats or dogs? And definitely dogs. Okay. All right, Andrew, listen, thank you so much for spending uh, the last uh, wee while uh, chatting. It's been great fun. Um, it's great it's to see you. It was good to see again. you in Seattle. Um, I think we've both aged uh, quite gracefully. Um, oh, thank you, and, you too. And <laughs> don't look too decrepit you know, <laughs> at this stage in whatever season it is of our careers and lives. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for thinking of us uh, down here in the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> it's a pleasure and great to see yeah. you. Yeah, you too.